morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington. Today is Wednesday, July the 13th, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. A court in France has sentenced a former Rwandan official to 20 years in jail over complicity in the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi and for crimes against humanity. Where he had told Tutsis to go to where he told them they'd be safe and in fact delivered them into the hands the court heard of the militia. I mean, some of these people were saying that you know, this is, yes, this is justice, it's very late, but it's justice nevertheless. The International Committee of the Red Cross warns hundreds of millions of people in sub-Saharan Africa are going hungry due to conflict, climate shocks and rising food prices. As we look at 2023, we know that this will repeat itself. This climate shock, these climate shocks will repeat themselves. The food insecurity will remain as acute as it is. It will not end with a calendar year. So we all, we are better collectively to be prepared for a long haul. And a judge in Iswatini has rejected a request to acquit two detained pro-democracy members of parliament who were arrested and jailed while delivering a petition calling for democracy reforms. We'll have those stories and more coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story... A court in France has sentenced a former Rwandan official to 20 years in jail over complicity in the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi and for crimes against humanity. The prosecution charged Rora Bachibaruta, a former prefet of Jikongoro Prefecture in southern Rwanda, for his role in massacres of Tutsis in the area. Bachibaruta is the fourth Rwandan to be tried in French courts for complicity in the Rwandan genocide to appear in court in France. This is after pressure from activists for France to act against suspected perpetrators living in the country. Catherine Field is a political analyst and reporter who has been following the case closely. I reached her in Paris to talk about the significance of this verdict. He was the prefect of a southern region of Rwanda. And in the in that position, he had control over all the officials in that region. That is the police, the civil servants. He also had connections to the various Hutu militias. Now, he, during that time when he was in charge, he held rallies, he held public meetings, he went to training sessions with the police, and it was at those, it was alleged in the courtroom here in Paris, it was alleged that he incited this violence against the Tutsis and that he incited these various members of the Hutu militia to go out and to, as it was said in court, to, to harm uh, these people or either to kill or to cause serious bodily or mental harm. And where has uh, Mr. Bachibaruta been living since 1994? He moved to France in 1997 and has been living a very quiet life here. Since then, been living very freely. Uh, and it was really only in the last, what, 15 years when there's been this move 
really pushed along by the Rwandan community here to bring some of these alleged perpetrators to justice. Now, there has been many trials of genocide fugitives who have been living in France. Uh, what is the significance of this verdict? There has been a number of trials of people accused of playing a role in the genocide, you know, trials carried out outside of Rwanda. What is the significance of this verdict in terms of where it was held, but more so for the victims and the survivors of the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi? It is significant because on the one hand, it does go some way to showing that France has changed and it is prepared to bring these alleged perpetrators to trial. Don't forget, for many decades, it was alleged that France is harboring these people, that in fact, France is putting its own uh, face forward, trying to save its own face by not having these people come forward. The allegation was that they were going to, if you like, say that the, the French knew what was happening, that the French had a hand in all this. And so by bringing this particular man to trial uh, puts that to bed to some extent. And what was some of the evidence presented to court by prosecution? And what was the mood like in the court when the verdict was read? It's been a very difficult uh, trial. I, it really has been nine weeks of absolutely horrific testimony. Yes, on the final day, uh, the defendant did say that he was innocent. He said that he never intended to abandon the, the Tutsis of Rwanda. He said that he questioned whether it was his lack of cover. He questioned whether it was his lack of courage. He questioned whether he could have saved them. He said that question has haunted him for 28 years. But that really does pale into comparison of what we've been hearing, uh, which is you know, some of the survivors, particularly from a, a small town in uh, southern Rwanda, Chanika, people there gave evidence to the court saying that they remembered him coming there. They remembered what he said, inciting the crowds. But even people who had been in some of these areas, some of these prisons and schools and churches and health centres where he had told Tutsis to go to where he told them they'd be safe and, in fact, delivered them into the hands, the court heard, of the militia. I mean, some of these people were saying that you know, this was, yes, this is justice, it's very late, but it's justice nevertheless. Catherine Field is a political analyst and reporter. I reached her in Paris. The International Committee of the Red Cross warns that hundreds of millions of people in sub-Saharan Africa are going hungry due to conflict, climate shocks and rising food prices triggered by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. The ICRC warns Africa's food crisis is set to worsen. It says conflict and armed violence, failing harvest due to years of drought and increases in food and other commodity prices are driving more people into extreme poverty and hunger. A recent UN assessment estimates 346 million people on the continent face severe food insecurity, meaning one quarter of the population does not have enough to eat. The ICRC Regional Director for Africa, Patrick Youssef, says the situation is urgent. He warns many lives will be lost without a concerted effort by different actors to meet the challenges ahead. He says aid agencies, international financial institutions, and governments must collaborate to prevent the humanitarian crisis from becoming irreversible. 
As we look at 2023, we know that this will repeat itself. This climate shock, these climate shocks will repeat themselves. The food insecurity will remain as acute as it is. It will not end with a calendar year. So we all, we are better collectively to be prepared for a long haul, for a, for a situation, for a crisis that will certainly increase in size and volume. The RCRC reports the war in Ukraine has caused a sharp increase in fuel and fertilizer prices that, it says, has added significant pressure on farmers, many of whom are weathering the combined impact of conflicts and climate shocks. Youssef says the Horn of Africa is most seriously affected. He notes, however, that other parts of Africa, from Mauritania to the Sahel to Lake Chad, and to a lesser extent, the Central African Republic, are suffering from the effects of the Ukraine crisis. Countries are equally hit, at least those who are, as you mentioned, sir, dependent on grains and wheat from Russia and Ukraine. Somalia is the worst, 90%, but Nigeria has also a large dependency on that, Sudan and South Sudan as well. And indeed, the situation is extremely difficult for people that are inaccessible for humanitarian organizations such as Somalia. Yusuf says lack of access to people in areas affected by conflict and armed violence, such as Somalia and Burkina Faso, raise the challenges to a different level. The ICRC reports more than 35 armed conflicts are taking place on the continent and around 30 million people are internally displaced and refugees. The Swiss-based humanitarian agency says people uprooted from their homes are particularly vulnerable to extreme weather, fluctuation of food prices and hunger. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Daybreak Africa continues. 13 African heads of state are expected this week in Lusaka, Zambia for the fourth media coordination meeting of the African Union Regional Economic Communities and Regional Mechanisms. They are expected to discuss possible solutions to challenges affecting the continent with food insecurity and the control of disease among the top priorities. From Lusaka, Elias Limwanya has more. Thirteen African presidents are expected this week in Zambia for the 41st ordinary session of the Executive Council of the African Union and the fourth mid-year coordination meeting of the AU and the regional economic communities. Among the 13, five presidents form the Bureau of the Assembly of the African Union, the Union's supreme policy and decision-making organ that determines the AU's policies, establishes its priorities, and monitors the implementation of its decisions. Stanley Kakuo is Zambia's Foreign Affairs and International Cooperation Minister. He says the Southern African nation is ready to welcome delegates for the important meeting, which is expected to touch various continental issues of governance. We, as Zambia, are ready to receive the delegates from the continent to these important meetings. The government has confirmed to engage various stakeholders including the private sector, in the preparatory process to ensure the country is ready for this important event. An international conference center at which this week's meeting will take place is a gift from the Chinese government and cost 60 million United States dollars to build. It is expected to accommodate over 2,500 delegates. Toteda Ratabai is the head of assessment mission of the African Union Commission. This week, 
He inspected the meeting on behalf of the commission's chairperson, Musa Faki Mahamad. It's a, a great commitment and uh, the African Union Commission is fully ready to support with uh, the signing of this host agreement today. At the level of uh, the AUC, I think we are also ready uh, in terms of uh, preparedness. Zambia is ready to welcome the African, the continent here in Lusaka. Historian Yuston Chiputa lectures at the University of Zambia. He says the media coordination meeting of the African Union, regional economic communities and regional mechanisms is an important idea spearheaded by diaspora Africans to provide solutions to African problems. There were efforts being made in the United States of America among or African descendants of uh, slaves who had been uh, taken there and also in England after the independence of Egypt, Morocco, Algeria, and later on Ghana, Nigeria, and several other countries. At the time, the Organization of African Unity was formed in 1963. Zambia's tourism minister, Rodney Sikumba, says the AU meeting presents an opportunity for the sector to recover some of the missed profits, hotel room rentals, and tourism attractions as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. If we're going to create a convention bureau within my ministry, it therefore means that we also need to create space to trigger domino effects. In this case, I'm talking about accommodation. So if we're going to sit 5,000 people in here, where would they stay in Osaka? So ready to bring out appetite for uh, investors to come and invest in, 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 in accommodation establishment. The African Union a continental body consisting of 55 member states officially launched in 2002 as a successor to the Organization of African Unit. The official launch happened in Zambia. This week's meeting will also involve closed-door sessions whose results will be made public after the talks have ended on 18th July. For VOA Africa, I'm Elias Limanya in Lusaka. A judge in Eswatini on Tuesday rejected a request to acquit two detained pro-democracy members of parliament, Bachede Mabuza and Mtandeni Dube, were arrested and jailed on July the 25th of 2021 while delivering a petition calling for democracy reforms. They were charged with motivating political terrorism. Judge Mamsin Lamini rejected their request for acquittal on grounds that there was a solid case against the two. Siselom Gomenzulu is the lawyer for the two pro-democracy members of parliament. And he tells VOS James Barty that you can't charge someone with terrorism for making a political speech. We think the decision is unfair because in our view, our clients should not have been charged with terrorism and two counts of murder. Now, when the witnesses came to testify, none of the witnesses implicated our clients in any of those charges. So it's therefore surprising that perhaps notwithstanding the judge still felt that they have a case to answer because in our view they don't have any case to answer. But the judge says that uh, there is reason to the accusations. Uh, I don't know what informs that because if you look through the judgment, the judge has not provided clear reasoning. 
So we don't know what the, what the judge's attitude towards the prevented the estimate beforehand by the prosecution because she doesn't venture to analyze or to pass on what would be considered an understanding of the evidence as presented. All she does is to summarize both versions or at least the version of the prosecution as well as our version in support of the application. And then at the end, the judge says, uh, my client is okay to answer without reasoning it out and explaining to us what it is that informs that conclusion. So it's difficult to make out what the judge really thinks or the judge was thinking. Disappointing in that sense. This stemmed from the protest in which many people were wounded. First of all, you cannot commit terrorism merely by making political speech. So my client did none of those. They are members of parliament and therefore they are politicians by right. It is within uh, their purview and it is within their right to have uh, made political speech and to have uh, ventured their opinion about what they thought could be the solution to the evil that was besetting the country at the time. And in any of the acts of violence and looting that uh, took place, none of those acts where my clients were found to be present. They were nowhere to be found. There is no witness that says they were there, or there is no even not one witness that said they did what they did simply because of what my client had said. As a matter of fact, we know that um, it is the armed forces that kills people with impunity, impunity because there has been no consequences ever since then. There was no inquiry into how those people died. Some of them were checked out of their houses and killed. So this begs the question, who is the terrorist here? My clients who were calling for peaceful resolution through legal means of the issues or those that killed people. So your clients, Mabuza and Dube, were arrested in July last year, and uh, they have been in jail since then. What do you suppose is their fate? What is going to happen to them? Are they going to remain in jail, or can they get trial? Okay, insofar as the court process is concerned, the trial is going to proceed on the 9th of August. So what that means is that it will be the turn of my client or it will be our turn to present our evidence. Thank you so much again. It's so nice to talk with you. Thank you. That was Siselon Gomezulu, the lawyer for the two detained Iswatini pro-democracy members of parliament. He was speaking from Johannesburg with VOS James Barty. You're listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. The government of Malawi and the conservation group African Parks has started a month-long exercise of relocating 250 elephants. They will be transferred from Liwonde National Park in southern Malawi to Kasungu National Park in the center of the country. However, villagers around the parks fear that this will increase animal and human conflict. Lamek Masina reports from Blantyre. African Parks authorities told journalists that about 25 elephants have so far been relocated to Kasungu National Park, about 350 kilometers away from Liwonde. Samuel Kamoto is manager for the conservation group African Parks in the country. He says the aim of the relocation exercise is twofold. One, we want to reduce the population of elephants in Luanda National Park because currently we have 600 plus elephants in this park. Uh, we would be comfortable to have 300 elephants in this park. The second reason is that we want to restock Kasungu National Park. Kasungu used to have 1,500 there about, uh, but uh, that population was reduced to under 100 uh, over a period because of uh, heavy poaching that was happening. Suppose the transfer of the elephants 
Patricia Ndadzera is a representative of the organization in Malawi. Apart from the elephants, we are also going to move some other plants game. Some of those animals are buffalo, impala, sable, waterbuck, um, that will be moved uh, together with the elephants. This is the second relocation in three years, with 300 elephants moved from Liwonde to Nkota Kota Game Reserve in 2019. This year's exercise has attracted mixed reactions from communities living around the two game reserves. Villagers living near Liwonde National Park say the exercise will help reduce animal-human conflicts they have endured for years. Ruth Samson is among them. She says they are now happy that some of the elephants are being removed from the park. When there were a lot of elephants, they destroyed their crops and even killing people. She says, for example, in 2017, an elephant killed a person there. But communities near Kasungu National Park fear more elephants may lead to more human-wildlife conflict. Rosemary Banda is among residents living around the game reserve. She says there are worries that the presence of many elephants there would contribute to food shortages because elephants have in the past destroyed their crops. She says there was a time when elephants destroyed her crops and left her without enough food as she relies on her own farm produce for survival. However, the government says it has constructed a 40-kilometer-long fence in Kasungu to prevent the elephants from entering villages. But this week, a stray elephant from Kasungu National Park killed one villager, fueling more fears among people living around the park. In the meantime, authorities have ordered game rangers to hunt and kill the stray elephant. Lamek Masina for VOA News. Blanta, Malawi. Somalia is normally a top exporter of livestock to the Middle East, especially during the Muslim holiday of Eid al-Adha. But a record drought in the Horn of Africa has wiped out millions of livestock, leaving Somali livestock farmers struggling, some forced to live in camps for displaced people. For VOA, Mohamed Shekno reports from Mogadishu in Somalia. In one of Somalia's largest livestock markets, located just outside Mogadishu, sales have stagnated during one of the busiest times of the year, Eid al-Adha. Muslims celebrate the holiday in July with three consecutive days of mass slaughtering. But this year, prices are too high for money to buy an animal to celebrate the holiday. Muhammad Abdi says he came here to buy a goat but cannot afford it. He says that since he was among those who came to this market this morning to buy animals for Eid al-Adha, the things they planned and the prices they intended to buy something are quite different because the prices are higher than theirs. Experts blame inflation and a drought that has killed millions of animals in the Horn of Africa. Elsewhere, Marche Slaso waits with others to receive meat at the camp for internally displaced people. The father of three, who also cares for his aging mother, used to own his own herd of livestock in the lower Shabela region of Somalia. 
He says that he owned a herd of animals, but all of them died in the drought, and the drought has forced him to live in this IDB camp. And he says, as you see today, I have nothing left of his belonging. He says, please help me. The drought has had an impact on inflation, holiday activities, and livestock sales and exports, according to Hassan Isse, an advisor with Somalia's humanitarian ministry. He says, as a result of the drought, nearly 700,000 Somali animals, including camels, cows, and goats, died. He says that people had lost their livestock, which provided them with an economic backbone, such as milk, so they had to move. Mohamed Sharnour for VOA News, Mogadishu. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington.